If you will, let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5 as today we finally come to the conclusion of our incredible time in this letter in a series we've entitled That You May Know, which is also the title of my message this morning as we conclude this letter. John runs the table by giving us five assurances that we can take to the bank concerning the Lord. Once we know for certain that we are in Christ, he gives us five assurances and certainties that allow us and who encourage us in our time while we wait on the the Lord to return and while we navigate this uh, fallen world. And so, As we come to the end of this letter, let us first remind ourselves why we began it. We wanted to answer the question. We wanted to give the assurance to those who would have the doubt if they are truly saved or not. As John writes in verse 13 of chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We want to answer that question for you. And we believe that John has done so brilliantly as we've worked through the entire letter together. As we come to the end, and John then begins to list individual assurances that we can have as believers in Jesus Christ, we are faced with the accusation by the world concerning our faith in Jesus Christ And that is, is our certainty as believers in Jesus Christ simply a product of credulity? Credulity means that we are willing to believe or to trust too readily, especially without proper or adequate evidence. We would be considered individuals who are gullible, naive, dupable, accepting, and over-trusting. So when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ, the question then becomes, can we be certain of the promises of God made to us in his word? And what is that certainty based upon that would remove it from being just merely credulity? That's a question that the world is challenging us with today, and it's a good one. Because credulity would be illustrated by someone looking to the moon and saying, the moon is made of green cheese. Now, I don't know why they always pick green cheese. Green cheese is never usually a good thing. I don't know if green cheese is ever a good thing. If I find green cheese in the refrigerator, it's headed to the filing cabinet called the garbage can. But we have nothing to substantiate our thinking concerning the moon being green cheese, and yet if we choose to believe it, that would be figured as credulity. Now the problem is, is that the world says that your certainty in your faith in Jesus Christ, and the word faith, of course, means complete trust or confidence in someone or something, for us to have that complete faith in Jesus Christ is simply an issue of credulity, that you're being foolish in placing so much trust in such a thing. And yet throughout the entire letter of 1 John, John used the same Greek word over and over and over again, and that is that you may know, that you may know. 
that you may know. He wants us to have assurance. He wants us to have that confidence that is needed to move forward in our Christian faith. And as a result, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we can do so based on the promises of God. And so John ends this letter by giving us five assurances that we can be certain of as those who are in Christ. Again, it begins in verse 13 with the certainty of the assurance of our faith. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Throughout the New Testament, the writers knew that if we were not secure in our salvation, we would have a very difficult time moving forward in our relationship with God. Moving from the place of immaturity to maturity would be very difficult if we were constantly worrying, if we were constantly fretting over the fact that we may or may not have lost our salvation at any given time. The theological position that I take on that is that one who is truly saved in Jesus Christ cannot lose their salvation. Now again, let me say it very clearly. One who is truly saved in Jesus Christ cannot lose their salvation. The text I would take someone to to to, uh, uh, illustrate this would be John chapter 10 where Jesus says, nothing can snatch you out of my hands. I believe it is one of the clearest statements that we have concerning security in our faith in Jesus Christ. The question is not that of security. The question actually is, are we in Christ or are we not in Christ? And that was the question that led to this entire study of the book of 1 John. As you remember, we looked at a survey that was taken earlier this year that was extremely troubling in their findings. They discovered that out of the 6,000 people that they surveyed, only 3 out of 10 adults considered themselves to be born again. But that's a superficial question. They wanted to discover how many of those truly born again are living out their faith and truly believe what they believe is real. Discovering that out of that 30%, which would of course be three out of 10 adults, only one of those three were truly living out their faith in Jesus Christ. And we demonstrated by the book of James that one who is truly saved is going to demonstrate their salvation by their lifestyle, by their works. We are not saved by works, but those works will demonstrate that we are truly saved. And so we began to ask the question, how can we know that we have eternal life? And moving our way through 1 John, we found that John gave us three tests. And those tests can be summarized as such that those who are truly saved will first and foremost live like Jesus lived. Secondly, they will love like Jesus loved. And thirdly, they will think as Jesus thunk. I had to say that. It just was a perfect setting for that. 
And as a result, one can know for certain that they have eternal life. Now, in that certainty of salvation, John just didn't want to leave it there. He wanted to follow that with a list of assurances as he closes this letter to these individuals. He wanted them to know that this placement, this position in Christ, this eternal life came with certainties that allow uh, us to navigate the troublesome world in which we live. And the first of these certainties has to do with prayer, our prayer life. I don't think that any of us here would be satisfied to say that they are completely happy with their prayer life. I think all of us know that prayer is probably an area of our life that we certainly need to address. I think it is one of the most unutilized aspects of the Christian faith. And John wanted us to give us an assurance, a confidence, a certainty concerning our prayer lives that hopefully this morning will help you in developing the prayer life that you seek after. I think prayer is one of the greatest privileges a Christian has. That we have the ability, we have the uh, responsibility, we have the privilege of being able to enter the throne room of God at any given time to be able to interact, to talk with our Heavenly Father. That's an incredible statement. When I went to Washington, D.C. a few years back, I couldn't believe how many places I couldn't get into. I went up to the doorbell of the White House, and I asked to see the president. And he said, who's calling? Well, Eric Benz is. Who's Eric Benz? Me. And you know, they didn't let me in. So I went over to the Capitol building, and I wanted to talk to some of the senators, and I knocked on their door, and I said, you know, I'd like to speak to Senator so-and-so. And they said, okay, who's there? And I said, Eric Benz. And who's Eric Benz? Well, I am. And I didn't get to see any of the senators. I went to the congressmen, and I didn't get to meet any of the congressmen. I finally got to talk to a waiter at a, a restaurant across the street from the Capitol building who asked me if I wanted water or tea with my meal. The point I'm making in, in a sarcastic manner is that I can't even get to the ruler of our, our land because he doesn't know me. And yet, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I can enter into the throne room of God, the one who is over all things, the one who has created all things, the one who knows me so intimately and personally that every hair on my head is numbered, which he loves to subtract, obviously, and every tear that I've ever cried in a bottle. And yet I can approach him anywhere at any time and talk with him openly and confidently. This is a privilege. Now, John is trying to assure these believers in Jesus Christ, these new believers in Jesus Christ, that they have this privilege. And therefore, they can have this confidence in approaching God the Father in prayer through the individual, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
And so he says in verse 14, if you'll read there with me, and this is the confidence or assurance that we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. What an incredible privilege this is. Understanding the Old Testament and the manner in which prayer was offered helps us to understand the, the incredible opportunity that this is here in our text this morning. When individuals prayed in the Old Testament, the priests were the ones who prayed on behalf of the people. Individuals could pray, but they were given prayers in which to pray by the priests who act as intermediaries between God and man. Now we are given the illustration that we ourselves can go directly through to God through the person of Jesus Christ, our ultimate high priest, no longer needing the mediation of a human being in between us, therefore allowing us to pray not only in the location of the temple, which would have been the central location of prayer there in Jerusalem, but now we can pray anywhere that we find ourselves to be. This is huge. And you know what the saddest aspect of all of this is? Is that we have been given such a great blessing and yet we don't utilize it in many, many cases. It's amazing how we will run to worry, to anxiety, to fear, rather than to run to God in prayer. I don't know why we are like that. We are just like that. I'm like that. And I'm sure you are also in some regards. But so often when we have the choice of going to God and allowing him to minister onto us and to impart to us, I believe as the scripture says, a peace that surpasses all understanding, we then choose not to go that route. We choose then to go and to fester and to fret and to worry and to fear, etc., etc. But look at what he says here. He's giving us an invitation not only an invitation, but he is also supplying us with an assurance that if we, if we pray according to the will of God, he hears us. This word confidence means a boldness, a courage. And in it, it also entails the idea that this courage and boldness is displayed at a time of opposition. So it would be proper to say that these prayers are offered when things are going tough. And we can be confident that in that position, at that moment, that if we pray according to the Lord's will, he will hear us. So the question then becomes, obviously, what is the Lord's will for us in prayer? How do I discover that? Discovering the the Lord's will in any regard always begins with the word of God. And allowing that to move you to a place of prayer, which then leads you to an intimacy and allowing you then to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. But it always begins with the Word of God. 
For example, when it comes to praying according to the will of God, according to his word, Mark eleven twenty four tells us, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And he's talking about praying, number one, by faith. Trusting that the God in whom you're praying to is capable and desiring of answering the prayer on your behalf. Of course, that is in the context of his will for us. And whatever that is, we know that it is the best that he has for us. Number two, we are to pray in his name. And many Christians feel that that simply means just to end our prayer with the signature of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm stamping the authority of my prayer on, onto, uh, uh, I'm stamping his authority on my prayer and, and so forth. And therefore it will be answered because it's simply followed by in Jesus' name. But as John says in 14, 13 through 14, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that my father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. But what does that mean? It means that we're praying as Jesus would have prayed. You know, I've been praying for 30 years for a Corvette in Jesus name. And the Lord's got such a great sense of humor. He blessed me with a car that started with the letter C But instead of going from 0 to 60 in 2 seconds, it's 0 to 60 in 12 minutes. It's an incredible car. It's called a Corolla. And it gets me from point A to point B. Now, of course, this is not something Jesus would have prayed for, obviously. I just thought I'd try to slip it in there. But in his name means that we are praying as Jesus would have prayed if he were in our position. That's what it means. But he also says not only to pray in his name, but as we abide in him in John 5, 15, 7, where he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. But the condition is abiding in him, which is meaning that intimate state of relationship between two. And then it means his word abiding in us. So this means that the context of my prayers will be governed by his word in my heart. But he also says in 1 John 3, 21 and 22, he says we must walk in obedience. Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence. There's that same word that he uses here in our text before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So that is important. So these are all points that have an effect upon my prayer life that would be considered his will for me concerning my prayer life. But he also gives us a negative one in James 4, 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. That Corvette falls in that category. But Lord, I could get to church so much quicker. If someone was in the ER and suffering, I could be right there by their bedside. No, Eric, I'm not going to bless you with a Corvette. But instead of driving by sight, drive by faith. For 200,000 miles on a car is nothing to me. (laughs) The will of God for our prayer lives is found in the Word of God. 
And if we pray accordingly, listen to what he says to us, he hears us. We can be confident of this, assured of this. And we know that he, if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Meaning that we know that God knows that we have prayed according to these things and will answer and respond to those prayers accordingly in his word. I'm sorry, in his will and at, at his time. That's what he's saying here. Number one assurance is the assurance concerning our prayer lives. But in verse 16, our prayer lives can also have effect on our brothers. So our third certainty for this morning is the fact that God helps others through our prayers. Now, I must warn you before we get into this next portion of Scripture that this is one of the most highly debated uh, portions of 1 John among scholars because of the seriousness of what is being said here. Let us begin. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Now, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What is he stating here? I'm going to try to best answer that for you this morning. And I certainly would ask that you know that it is something that is highly debated amongst biblical scholars today. There are two points of debate. Number one, the identity of what is meant by a brother. Number two, what, are, what is the identity of the sin that leads to death? Or, yeah, the sin, single, that leads to death. The third question that is debated uh, least out of this out of this text is what are the sins that do not lead to death so let us begin with who is meant by the brother if one sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death he shall ask god and god will give him life what is meant by this the identity of a brother now we may first identify this brother as someone in general. And that is based on the idea that in the Gospels, the word brother is sometimes used uh, synonymously with the word neighbor that could reference a believer or non-believer. This then opens the door to the possibility that brother here may be identifying someone who is not saved. My problem with that is that that doesn't fit within the context of the letter. The issue here, the manner in which brother is used, it is always used here in 1 John to speak of one who is a Christian or who is gathered with Christians. But it is someone that would be included 
in the gathering of the brothers and sisters in Christ. So I feel that it is better to identify the brother as someone who finds themselves uh, with or among, that's a better word, the brothers and sisters in Christ. And there is a possibility of that individual sinning and that sin not leading to death. And he shall ask and God will give him life. Are we speaking of eternal life here? Are we speaking of life, physical life here? I think that's the more tricky of the, of the questions within the passage. But it appears as such. My, my, I guess I'm going through puberty. My voice just popped there. Finally, at 49. Um, it appears that what he is speaking of here is if we see a brother or sister who is in Christ who is sinning, they're struggling with sin, and that sin is keeping them and hindering them from what God would have for them, that we are asked to pray for them, that they may be freed from those struggles. And the life that God gives him is that eternal life that doesn't begin when we first, when we die and then enter into eternity. Eternal life starts the moment that we are saved. Now, we can hinder what God desires to do and bless us with by living in a state of sin before him as a believer in Jesus Christ, well documented in the New Testament. And I think that's what John is alluding to here. These sins aren't, uh, you know, they're not leading to the ultimate death And that is separation from God for all eternity because they are saved and we can pray for these individuals and God will give them victory over those areas of their flesh, those areas of their lives that trouble them and continuously tempt them to fall into sin once again. I believe that's what he is saying here. Therefore, now we move to those others. Then there's a hyphen in the ESV to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. He is reiterating, he is qualifying the previous statement by that that last phrase. Now, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. One should pray for that. Uh, uh, All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Verse, there's a grammatical issue here that I need to bring to your attention. I believe that in the Greek, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, those are the individuals we should pray for. Those are our brothers. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say one should pray for that. The problem that many have is that they, that they believe that John is associating that next phrase with the brothers of 16. I believe that he is speaking of a different group of people. I believe that he has finished his thoughts concerning the brothers who are committing sin leading to death, uh, leading not to death, and then he goes, there is a sin that leads to death, but he's not necessarily equating that that sin is being practiced by the brothers who he just mentioned. He's just once again reiterating the fact that there is a sin that leads to death. Okay, so I do believe we have to take it in a separate 
uh, manner to understand what he is saying here. I do not say that one should pray for that. What is he referring to? I believe that what he is referring to here, and there are many, oh my goodness, the list goes on and on and on. There are many, many uh, considerations, but I believe that he is speaking about what he initially announced in 1 John 2.19. In 1 John 2.19, he stated, they went out from us, but they were not of us, For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might become plain that they all are not of us. He is speaking about the sin of apostasy. What is an apostate? An apostate is one who has heard the great truths of the Christian faith, has become intellectually convinced that Jesus is the Christ, has even made professions of Christianity, although he was never truly been saved. After having tasted the good things of Christianity, he completely renounces them and repudiates the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an apostate. And I believe that John is freeing them from the necessity of praying for those. Now, the text isn't necessarily a prohibit. uh, He doesn't prohibit them from praying. He says, I'm not burdening you with that prayer. I'm not saying you have to pray for them. As he states, all sin, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. The state of apostasy seems to be a position within the heart of the individual that no return is possible. This is what the writer of Hebrews chapter 6 is saying when he, when he writes about repentance is impossible for such people. The sin of apostasy, which would fit beautifully in the context of the letter here in 1 John. For he wrote concerning those who left who never truly were of them. As one wrote, he said, when the author speaks of sins that lead to death, it is very likely that he has the sin of the secessionists in mind, or the apostates. They are people who deny that Jesus is the Christ and have come in the flesh, and also deny the significance of the atoning death. This would mean that they place themselves outside the sphere of forgiveness, and their sins become sins on to death. Way more information than you probably ever wanted. But there is a sin. The Bible teaches us clearly that before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be a great apostasy like never before. Are we seeing the beginnings of that now in our culture today? Individuals who are never truly born again, walking away from the faith to follow something else or simply to reject Jesus Christ altogether. It is something that is interesting to consider and must be something confronted by we who teach the word of God. The fourth assurance comes from the, gives us the assurance that we have been delivered from the evil one. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. One who is truly born of God cannot continue in the same lifestyle in which they once uh, occupied or conducted themselves. 
One who is truly born again will have renewed desires. They will have the desires for the things of God and they will begin to hate sin as God hates sin. And though we may struggle with sin and though sin may encroach upon us from time to time, our heart's desire would be that we are free from that. We are not running to sin, we are running away from sin as followers of Jesus Christ. So therefore, one who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. In a continuous tense in the Greek, it's something we do over and over again. But he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, there's a grammatical issue here also in this difficult passage. Who protects who? The King James and the New King James writers believe that it was we ourselves who keep ourselves from sin. And we certainly have the responsibility of doing so. We have the responsibility of Christians to avoid sin altogether, as much as we possibly can. However, though, the newer translations put that onus on God as one who protects us from the evil one. A better translation is found in the Net Bible, which I personally believe uh, the New English translation is the best English translation there is, but it is very um, rare to find. We know that everyone fathered by God, they write, does not sin, but God protects the one he has fathered and the evil one cannot touch him. Now this would be a perfect in fitting with what John said in the Gospel of John concerning the prayer of Jesus before he ascended into heaven, knowing that Satan roams as a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy, Job shows us that the devil cannot touch one without God's permission, and the devil cannot take us from our relationship with God in any way, shape, or form. As Jesus prayed in John 17, 12 through 15, I'll read it for you. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and have, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but notice what Jesus then says, but that you keep them from the evil one. So it is God who keeps us from the evil one, and not necessarily ourselves, keeping ourselves from the evil one, though we certainly have that responsibility. So John is telling us that we need to keep our, uh, that God keeps us and protects us and the evil one does not touch him. Satan can do nothing to you unless he gets our father's permission to do so. Is that a comfort to you? Sure is. Because one in the world doesn't have that assurance. One in the world can be torn apart by Satan. But for us, like Job, God protects us. As he one wrote William MacDonald with John, there's no mincing of words. He sees only two spheres, in him or under the sway of the wicked one. 
All people are either saved or lost, and their position depends on their relationship with Christ. It leads us to our last point this morning, verse 19, 20, and 21. And we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Our fifth certainty is our knowledge of him and him being true. Jesus Christ came to give us understanding. That understanding was not only of spiritual truth, but of the Father himself. For Jesus had said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, giving us the perfect representation of God the Father here on earth. That we may know him who is true. The purpose of Jesus' coming was that we may know that he is the truth and perfectly represents his heavenly Father who is the God of all things. And he is assuring us that in Christ we have this certainty of the knowledge of him who is true. So if we want to know about the spiritual world, we look within the scriptures. If we want to know about God, we look into the scriptures. For God tells us very clearly that there is no other God beside him. And so it's so important that you and I know that we have this assurance in Christ. And then he ends with this incredibly, what some feel is a defragmented phrase, little children, keep yourself from idols. Some originally thought that this was not in the original text because it is not mentioned anywhere else within the letter. There is no talk of idol worship or idolatry anywhere within the text from, from 1 to chapter 5. So why would John end in this way? It's almost as if he had a thought and he wrote it and he threw it on there and he wanted to follow up or to end with this thought and this note. But what did he mean by this? Here's what he meant by this. And this is so important. In the context of the understanding of apostasy, John saw that idolatry was the first step in that direction. John believed that idolatry would be the first step and ultimately, if continued in that path, would end in apostasy. So he warns us. He says, guard yourself, keep yourself. We here in the United States of America have no idea what idolatry is. I'm convinced of that. Let me sum it up this way. If there's anything in your life that you love greater than God or Jesus Christ, it is an idol. Now, I don't say that presumptuously in my own opinion. For God says that we must love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The word all there is all-inclusive. It means everything. He even furthers to go on to say that if anyone loves mother, father, son, or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of me. 
If we love anything or we are more passionate about anything than that of Christ, God would consider that an idol within our life. And John says, be careful. For anything apart from Christ is false. As one wrote, a Christian has turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Idols are dead, but Christ is the living God. Idols are false, but Christ is the true God. This is the secret of the life that is real. John's admonition to keep ourselves from idols can be paraphrased, watch out for imitation and artificials, gods, because they are not real. That's what it means. Think of what God said to his people when they were going into idolatry. One of the first things he said to him, he says, why won't you come back to me? I'm a jealous God. The jealousy that he has for us. For our affection must be on him and him alone. These are the assurances that John gives us as we leave this letter together this morning. He has answered for us the question, and he has allowed us to know that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ by three manners of tests. Number one, those who live like Christ have eternal life. Those who love like Christ have eternal life. Those who think like Christ have eternal life. And warning us from that apostasy... He says, keep yourselves now from idols. Be assured that you have confidence when you come to God in prayer by his will. Be sure that you have confidence that your prayers for another will be answered and will be beneficial for them. Be assured that God is keeping you from the sway of the wicked one. And be assured that you have a true understanding of God through his only son, Jesus Christ. That's what he is saying to us. It's not credulity. It's certainty. And it is certainty based on faith. But that faith is not blind. It is not open-ended. And it does not peer within an abyss. It is based on the written word of God, followed by the promises of God fulfilled in the life of those who believe in him. You can have certainty based upon your faith in Jesus Christ. And that certainty will guard you and give you security as you navigate through an insecure world.